A special thank you to Garrett Vandenberg and Matthew Wyden for helping me not only frame this conversation, but come up with specific questions to pose to both Ian and John. A reference to their channel slash podcast is in the description, and I recommend you check it out. They've interviewed both John Verveke as well as myself. Also, a special thank you to Sictanic K, official, that is at Sictanic K, for the audio processing of Ian's vocals. We unfortunately had some audio issues with Ian's microphone, and I wasn't able to fix it. However, this person came through on Twitter and helped me voluntarily. Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, a writer, and a former Oxford literary scholar who came to prominence with his work The Master and His Emissary, subtitled The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. We've spoken last year regarding that very topic and the link is in the description. His new book, The Matter with Things, Our Brains, Our Delusions, and the Unmaking of the World, and the links to both books are in the description. John Verveke is a professor of cognitive science at the University of Toronto, my former home, who's one of the few scholars taking an extensive and meticulous cognitive scientific approach to wisdom, Buddhism, and consciousness. John and I have also spoken several times on this podcast, and you can see the thumbnails here and the links to each will be in the description as well. It's that latter topic, consciousness, that in more ways than one binds us here today. As usual, click on the timestamp in the description to skip this intro. My name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a Torontonian filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics, and this channel is dedicated to the explication of the variegated terrain of theories of everything. That is, primarily from a theoretical physics perspective, so for example, grand unification and quantum gravity, but as well as understanding the role consciousness has to play to the fundamental laws, provided these laws exist at all in a form knowable to us. Two quick announcements. Firstly, there's a physics and consciousness contest on this channel, the link to which will be in the description as well as the thumbnail is over here. Essentially, it's the physics version of the three blue, one brown math contest, except ours is for physics and consciousness as well. If you have an idea for some explainer of an advanced physics or consciousness concept, then think about creating a video for this and submitting as you have the chance to win $1,000. Brilliant has come in to give 5,000 among the top five. So that's 1,000 for each. The second announcement is that there's a new theoriesofeverything.org website. This is a website where you can support Toe slash Kurt, which is me, instead of on Patreon because Patreon takes a huge cut as well as PayPal takes a cut. There's many different places that take their share. And as a creator, you don't have control over your donations. So for instance, Patreon may decide to shut you down for whatever reason they like. There are also a variety of benefits that come with being a member on the Toe website. For instance, you get an ad-free version of the shows that are coming out, an audio ad-free version. That is to say, you get a private link to the RSS feed to download the audio versions, and they come out about 12 to 48 hours, sometimes even one week prior to you seeing them here on YouTube. Just so you know the way that it works is that I finish editing, and then I have to do another run-through and go through timestamps and catalog references and so on. That takes time, and what it means is that I put it out on YouTube, and then I have a lag so that I can build up some hype and some audience prior to the premiere, but then that means that I've actually finished the episode a couple days before. So what I'll do is I'll upload simultaneously for the members an audio version, ads-free, and then later it premieres on YouTube. For you as the YouTube audience, nothing changes. This is the way I've always done it. It's just that I have here an audio version for a little while prior, which I'm going to release to the Toe members as a thank you, and it's going to be ads-free. So that's one of the benefits. From this point forward, there may be mid-rolls, that is ads in the middle of a podcast. And that's just part and parcel of the Toe members, the Toe audience, you are sponsoring Toe, and then the sponsors also sponsor Toe, so thank you for your support. Those won't be there in the audio ads-free version for the Toe members. 
Second benefit is that you get discounts to any live events when we do have them. For instance, I'd like to do Carl Friston in London live in front of an audience. Same with Ema Gilchrist and John Verveke at some point. Another benefit is that there will be exclusive merch offered to the Toe members. Another benefit is that there's a number to text me. Again, if that's what you're into, we're testing this out for about a month. And yes, this is something where I am texting you back to your phone. Throughout much of this, you can see that the artwork here is exquisite on the website, and that's because it's been done by Boris Martinez Costello. A link to his Instagram is in the description as well. Thank you, Boris. Thank you so much. As for today's sponsor, it's Brilliant, Brilliant.org. Now, Brilliant has been with Toe since near the beginning. I recommend you check out Brilliant.org slash Toe if you're interested in learning math and physics and science. So Brilliant is a place that you go to learn about STEM subjects in an interactive manner. They have these bite-sized courses. It's extremely easy. You may think that special relativity is beyond you. No, it's not. It's something that someone can understand in elementary school. The way that Brilliant breaks down these extremely, ordinarily extremely advanced concepts is elementary. At some point, I'll be doing an introduction to information theory. In particular, there's David Deutsch and Chiara Marletto's constructor theory. And because I'd like to learn that, I decided, let me brush up on the fundamentals of information theory. And I took Brilliant's course just to do so over this winter break. Visit brilliant.org slash toe, that's T-O-E, to get 20% off the annual subscription. I recommend that you don't stop before four lessons. Just keep going until you hit four, and you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can now comprehend subjects you previously hadn't difficult time grokking. Okay, thank you and enjoy today's episode. We'll start this by asking each of you, what is the meaning crisis and what are its causes? And we'll start with Ian, if you don't mind. Well, uh, what I understand by it is, is the fact that people have lost any sense that things really speak to them from somewhere beyond their own, what they've made up in their own minds. The, the, the experience of something um, great, possibly transcendent, certainly of existential importance, is harder now because we live in a world of reductive materialism in which everything is supposed to be explained as the dead movements of mechanical pieces. Um, I, I think this is not only incredibly unhealthy and causes mental illness, which uh, is not just my opinion, but the statistics speak for themselves, but is a huge mistake in its conception because I don't believe that meaning is something we make up. I believe it's something we find. And we have to put our way, ourselves in the way of finding it. And that would mean putting a certain degree of vulnerability of opening oneself to something in case one finds there's something there. And if one doesn't open oneself to it, one won't find that at all. I think it applies to... Um, spiritual life to religion uh, in as much as that is part of it for many people and it also applies to experiences of art and experiences of one another and what it is to be a human being we've degraded ourselves and then find ourselves in a nihilistic universe where um, nothing makes sense and nothing has meaning and uh, that's a very dangerous place to be for a number of reasons for the course of civilization and also for each of us as individuals. So, yes, it's a very Im important um, element in the position we find ourselves in. As you know, one of the things I believe has happened is that gradually over the course of recent Western civilization, 
and particularly after the Enlightenment, uh, we we overreached ourselves. We we were not content with the idea that um, thinking rationally helps banish many unnecessary woes and mistakes and and so on, but that we actually could understand everything. And once you think you can understand everything, your chances of understanding anything are remote. Uh, and this has been taken to hubristic extremes during uh, our lifetimes. And I associate this with the rise of a certain way of thinking about the world that I believe is the way in which the left hemisphere operates. It, it has evolved the way it has because it helps us grab stuff and get stuff, but it has outsourced the business of meaning and understanding to the right hemisphere. Or, or to put it another way, the right hemisphere has outsourced grab grabbing and getting stuff to the left hemisphere and remained able to understand. And that would bring a different relationship between ourselves and the world. Indeed, I think this idea of relationship and encounters with reality is a very important one, which no doubt we'll come back to. I argue in my latest book, The Matter With Things, that in fact, relations are what everything is built out of, and that relations are even prior to relata. So that would be my first, um, <laughs> my first attempt to give some idea of what I think about that huge question. Well, um, and I suppose it's one of the reasons why we're talking, my answer is gonna be, uh, I find, at least to my mind, quite convergent with what Ian said. Um, so, but I'll start from a different place, but I think I'll end up in the same, or very close to where he ended up. Um, I think the very processes that make us intelligently adaptive, make us perennially susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, um, and that across time and culture, people have come up with complex systems because this is a very complex system. Ecologies of practices, I call them, for intervening and ameliorating that self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, and also enhancing the sense of connectedness um, that is being undermined by the self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. That's to oneself, to other people, to the world. And when you take a look at that sense of connectedness, it overlaps very much with what's called meaning in life. And as, and as Ian said, we want to feel that we are connected to something that has a value and a reality other than our own egocentric preferences and existence. Uh, so I'll often ask people, what do you mean by meaning in life? And I'll say, well, tell me what you would want to keep continue existing, even if you weren't here. And they'll tell me and I'll tell and I'll say, that's what matters to you. That's what you want. That's what you want to be connected to beyond your egocentric preferences and your egocentric existence. I think the capacity to ameliorate that self-deceptive, self-destructive foolishness and to enhance the sense of connectedness is what people, what cultures have called wisdom. And I think what we're facing today is a two-pronged problem. Um, people don't know where to go for wisdom. They overwhelmingly know to, where to go for information. But like T.S. Eliot said, we have lost the wisdom and the knowledge and the knowledge and the information. So they precisely lack the discernment as to what they should pay attention to, what they should take seriously, what really matters. So they're overwhelmed with information. What counts as knowledge is now significantly in question in our culture. And of course, when I ask people where they go for wisdom, I either get a deafening silence or I get some autodidactic religion of me that the person gives me typically. Um, and so um, the fastest growing group in our culture are the nuns. 
uh, N-O-N-E-S. They have no official religious affiliation. That does not mean they are overwhelmingly atheist. They are, by and large, they describe themselves by this phrase that is very popular uh, to exactly the degree to which I find it vapid. They're spiritual but not religious, and it's very hard to determine what that actually means, other than they have some intuitive sense that they should be seeking wisdom, they should be seeking connectedness, but they distrust any of the institutionalized sources. The problem is the the what was supposed to offer the so religions have been the home for these ecologies of practices. And the Enlightenment offered to free us from the tyranny of religion and give us an alternative home. And it gave us gave us the scientific worldview, a scientific worldview which explains everything except how we generate science and the meaning that makes truth possible, and how science itself could possibly exist as a real entity within the ontology of that worldview. And so we and our science actually have no proper home in that worldview. And so the science can't provide the home for the ecology of practices. The religions are, are now largely regarded as obsolete or irrelevant uh, for a, a homing the ecology of practices. And so the perennial problems now go largely uh, unabated or ameliorated at best by autodidactic systems that have a strong proclivity for enhancing personal bias or group echo chambering. And of course, social media has just exacerbated uh, both of these tendencies uh, tremendously. And so we starve for meaning uh, in the midst of a wisdom famine. We can't ignore a scientific worldview, but that worldview does not properly place us. And what it does is it gives a tremendous emphasis on propositional knowing at the expense of all the non-propositional kinds of knowing, procedural, perspectival, and participatory. So we live in a propositional tyranny that prevents us from accessing those ways of knowing that would are properly the most powerful vehicles by which we can cultivate wisdom and a sense of connectedness. And I think that is the meaning crisis, and that is the situation we are in. Um, and it's getting worse and worse. Um, people experience it as a kind of domicide, a loss of home, even though they have shelter. Um, and COVID made it much, much worse. And we are seeing the mental health tsunami and the political ramifications of the acceleration of the meaning crisis right now. That would be my take on it. And one more thing, because it's convergent with what Ian said. We've lost Aletheia. We've lost the sense of truth as what I call transjectivity, the deeper thing that binds subjectivity and objectivity together, the thing that is give, being given prominence by 4E cognitive science. And meaning is such a real transjective relation. It's not, a, it's not arbitrarily subjective. It's not merely objectively measurable. It is a proper real relation. That's why I use the term connectedness. That's um, that's what I would say there. Ian, is there anything there that you would like to respond to? I, mean, I, I would, you know, broadly accept what what um, John has said. I mean, he's he's um, put really the same points I was trying to make, but just in a slightly different way, with perhaps from a different perspective. Um, I think we both see the importance of something that calls to us, we can't, we, we feel ourselves attracted towards something. Um, and we've lost the confidence to go there because um, technology 
and information have substituted for deep knowledge and wisdom, which is really what, mm. what John was mm. saying. Um, and I think the dangers in, I mean, the technology problem is the genie is out of the box and it can't be put back in. But one of the difficulties about it is all it does, it doesn't answer any questions, of course, all it does is enlarge our powers to alter things. <laughs> and that's only as good as our wisdom about what needs altering and in what way and to what end. And I don't believe we have that wisdom at all. We have more power than we've ever had in the history of humanity and the least wisdom we've ever had, I believe. Uh, and I, I think that this, what um, uh, John was calling the, the, the rise of propositional knowledge is very important when it comes to look at things like belief in the nature of God or the world, because I think they are dispositional forms of knowing, not propositional forms of knowing. And unfortunately, in recent history, they've been presented to us as propositions that we either assent to or fail to assent to, whereas in fact it's a matter of how we attend to the world, because attention is absolutely at the root of all of this problem we see. Coffee helps me work. It helps me fast from carbs. It's become one of the best parts of my day consistently. That's why I'm delighted that we're collaborating with Trade Coffee. They partner with top independent roasters to freshly roast and send the finest coffee in the country directly to your home on your preferred schedule. This matters to me as I work from home. Their team of experts do all the work testing hundreds of disparate coffees to land on a final curated collection of 450 exceptional coffees. I chose these three and the team at Trade Coffee worked to create a special lineup for theories of everything for the Toe audience based on some questions they asked me such as how much caffeine do I enjoy and what's the bitterness ratio, etc. You can get that lineup or if that's not, let's say, your cup of coffee, then you can take your own quiz on their website to find a set that matches your specific profile. If you'd like to support small businesses and brew the best cup of coffee you've ever made at home, then it's time to try Trade Coffee. Right now, Trade is offering our listeners $30 off your first order plus free shipping at drinktrade.com everything. That's drinktrade.com slash everything for $30 off. Do you use the word rationality and belief differently than John? Um, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea whether we do or not. I mean, I tend to make a distinction, which is not one that's hard and fast in the English language, but is one I make for the purposes of being clear about what I'm talking about or clearer. Um, and that is to make a distinction between rationality and reason. The, um, rationality is a more technical thing, but reason is the whole of one's ability to understand the world, bringing together everything one has learned from experience, one's ability to, yes, reason using logic, one's ability to attend to one's intuitions. It's the power that a good judge in the old days, a wise judge, as we would have thought of him, or usually it would have been him, uh, brought to bear on a human situation. So that's rationality. I think it's terribly important. I think in our, I don't want to knock it at all. It's just that it's a certain very diminished form of it, i.e. the most uh, mechanical rationalizations has taken over from that deep 
reason, that deep wisdom, which, which was much admired in the Renaissance, and was thought to be the, the sign of a, of a fully educated and, and well-read person. So um, I, I, I think reason is in fact in danger in our time. And also neither do I have anything to say against science. Science is hugely important and I'm very worried by the attacks on science mm -hmm. for purely political reasons. Science is, once we lose our anchors in reason and science, we're totally lost. But also if we only have reason and science, we're lost. They need to be mixed with properly what we can learn from intuition and imagination. So um, uh, I tend to use the word belief to mean the assertion of a proposition, but I acknowledge it has an older meaning, belaben, which is to exactly. give your heart to give your heart to. Exactly. Uh, and uh, but I've given up uh, the battle of trying to get people to use belief to mean that. Uh, so I'll say you can keep it for the assertion of propositions. I want to talk about something else that belaben used to uh, point to. Um, I use, I think I use rationality the way uh, Ian uses reason, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you my reasons, <laughs> which is I go back to the, uh, the word that translated logos. And when I talk about rationality, I'm talking about what the ancient Greeks meant by a logos, which is a much more comprehensive, uh, you know, the, uh, the self-organizing of intelligibility such that the world can be real to us. I think that's sort of the best understanding. And the Latin for that was ratio, which means a proper proportioning. And if you take a look at, like, if, for example, the use in the Stoics or in Plato, it means the proper proportioning, as Ian said, of attention. It means the pr proper proportioning uh, 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 of your of your character traits. Uh, think about Aristotle's golden mean. You want to get the proper proportion between uh, being cowardly and being foolhardy. So ratio is that much. So ratio is the proper proportioning of your consciousness, your cognition, and the character, and your character, such that virtue and virtuosity are possible. That's, and I think that's the ancient meaning of ratio, and that's why I use rationality. I reserve reason for the act of uh, deliberation, uh, but nothing much hangs on this distinction. I think Ian and I are both pointing to something similar, which is I talked about the truncation and the reduction of rationality to logicality and computation since the advent of the Enlightenment. And we have lost all those other aspects uh, of, um, you know, of rationality, the proper proportioning, like I say, of attention, of consciousness, of character uh, that is needed for virtue. And I take virtue to not mean uh, acting according to a moral rule like Kant might, but in the ancient sense of being deeply connected to what is most real. So I think the person, for example, who demonstrates courage is able to see through the distractions and distortions of fear and connect to, not just see, but a properly connect to what is most real and what most matters in a situation and therefore has the affordance to act best in that situation. That's what I mean by a virtue connecting us to reality. So for me, rationality is exactly that capacity. It's interesting that the word virtual now means precisely um, not being real in the sense you <laughs> well, that's that, yeah, there, and that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it, there is a connection because virtual have ha, having the potential and then potential exactly. became possibility. Uh, um, I'm aware of that. Um, no, I was just. I don't think we're really disagreeing here. I think it's just a matter of which words we choose to use. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I I like it uh, because I I talk about ratio religio. 
uh, the, the proper proportioning of how we are bound to things, how we are connected to things. And in that sense, the distinction between what we what we have since the Enlightenment called rationality and what we used to call religion is is diminished uh, mm. because if, if religion is about again, you know, appropriately binding ourselves religio to what is most real, the sacred, then ratio religio and religion are no longer oppositional. They have the potential to enter into real discourse with each other, which I think is part of what is needed right now. And I think I hear you saying that too. Uh, I, I think you, I hear you saying, I, I agree with you. I'm a scientist. I love science. And I think people who don't practice science should not uh, recommend its eradication. Uh, I, I think that that is a ridiculous proposal and it's even contradictory to their own claim that you have to have a lived experience of something in order to really understand it so i agree with you that that proposal is ridiculous but i think the the enlightenment proposal that everything that people were trying to encompass what what, what in what was broadly called religion which includes a lot of what we now pulled out as art and ritual and ceremony that that was also part of ratio religio that was a way in which we properly educated especially the non-propositional aspects of knowing uh, that are, are are vital for the cultivation of virtue and a sense of meaning. Um, so I agree with you there too. And I hear you saying we should get those two, at least it seems to me like you would agree with the proposal that we should find a way to get them talking to each other again, past the division uh, that separated them in the Enlightenment. Yes, certainly. In... Um in the the new, the new book um, of mine, which came out last year, the matter. I have it. I have it. By the way, Ian, I haven't oh, read wonderful. it yet, but, but oh, I wonderful. do have it. So I keep looking <laughs> no. at it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, how link to that will be in the description. How you'll find the time to read it, I don't know. But in this part two of that, I specifically look at the various ways in which we can come to something we could call truth about the world. And in in brief, I, did, I conclude that we need each of science, reason, intuition, and imagination, yes. not just one or two of these. And if possible, in most situations, we should try to bring as many of these as possible to bear, or are appropriate, to whatever it is we're looking at. I don't think this is what we're currently doing. There's a sort of naive war between scientism, people who've never really thought very much, but just imagine that whatever it is they've fallen into believing about a mechanical universe must be right. <laughs> uh, we've got a war on between them and, and other people who reject science and reject reason, and I, I, I don't wish to uh, encourage either party uh, uh, amongst those. Yeah, I agree. And I, I noticed in the second book, because I have, I, I didn't just put it on the shelf, I have looked at it. <laughs> but it is, yeah, it's like, I got to say, I, I didn't, I, I, this was a thunderbolt summer for me. I was traveling so much and talking in so many places. Uh, but, but you also, I did note in the second, you also talked about the sacred and recovering uh, the sacred in the second part of the book as well. So that's why I, I was yeah. supposing that that uh, whatever, yeah. I'll propose to you that whatever deficits and they're there they are many there were there are reasons behind the enlightenment critique but whatever deficits there are in religion 
it was an attempt to properly orient people towards the sacred when yes. it was functioning well. Yes, uh, uh, undoubtedly, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. And actually, what, uh, just to clarify for, for viewers, what um, what John has just referred to is, is, is not the part two that I was talking about, it's part three, which confusingly oh. is volume two. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, and, and the difference is that part two is epistemology and part three is metaphysics. So I'm looking at what what is time, motion, space, matter, consciousness, what are values, what is purpose, what is the meaning of the feeling we have, the sense of the sacred, and so on. So that's a, but anyway, there we are. <laughs> well, I'd like to talk to you about that. But first, I do want to talk to you about the previous thing you said, because some of my most recent work has been around something that overlaps with that. Uh, I mean, I've published on uh, flow and intuition, and mm. we could we could perhaps talk about that, uh, but uh, I've been doing recent work. Um, I gave an invited talk at uh, invited lecture at Cambridge about the imaginal um, and its relationship to rationality. Um, what, what I mean by rationality, and um, and in a, I'm filming my next series after Socrates, and there's a whole section where I where I'm talking about the how the Neoplatonists try to integrate the imaginal back into sort of the depths of philosophy. So I don't know if you're aware of the distinction that Corbin makes between the imaginary and the imaginal. Um, would it be worthwhile for me to quickly say what that is? I've, so I I've, be, I've got an idea, but I could be wrong. So if you like to unpack what you mean there. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and, then, and, and I'll ground it in a concrete um, thing. Mm. Um, and then I'll try and show how, just one quick point about how you can not, uh, uh, you know, not exhaustive, but exemplary of how you could see how it functions necessarily within what I'm calling rationality. So Corbin made a distinction, but the imaginary is when you picture things in your head and you're and it's not for the sake of perception, and you're in some sense escaping from the, the limitations of reality. Yeah. That's the imaginary. Okay. And it and it sort of maps onto what Tolkien meant by um escapist fantasy. Yeah. And then the, the imaginal is imagination for the sake of enhancing perception. And the, the, given deep learning and predictive processing, this now makes tremendous sense, right? Most of perception is imaginal in this sense. If, and if so, may, yeah, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, if I may just comment there. Um, this is precisely the distinction I make between what I call imagination and fancy, following, ah. following Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, yes. who are the greatest writers in the English language on this particular topic. And what they meant was the distinction exactly between fantasy that takes us away from reality and imagination, which is our only chance to enter into reality. Right. And there's a, and there's a connection, I believe. Uh, I know Coleridge has a huge influence on Barfield, and I believe there's some, I, I don't know if it's directly between Barfield and Corbin, but I think they both influence Hillman and others. So I'm aware there's connections yeah. Yeah. between those two bodies. And there's I'm also, no, Im importantly, the, um, uh, Coleridge, and, Coleridge wasn't the beginning of this because he learned a great deal from Schelling um, and more yeah. or less lifted some of it out of Schelling. <laughs> um, so it goes down the line from there to in our time or more recent time anyway, Owen Barfield and, and so on. Yeah. And, but, I, and I think Bortoff right. is right that it actually goes back you can see it in Goethe, and when Goethe is trying to get the herb plant, you, you, he, you he's, invent, he, he's inventing the imaginal act of perception. Uh, yes, that's a, that's a very good point, and he also makes distinctions which are remarkably apt about the difference between the world provided by the right and the world provided by the left hemisphere, incidentally. But there we are. Anyway. 
So the point I was making, uh, and so for example, when I'm teaching, but thank you for that enrichment. Kurt, you wanted to say something. Should I continue or? I want to see if this is correct. So the imaginary versus imaginal, the difference is one of intent. The reason why is like if one plays video games, they're escaping or they can be, but yet they still acquire skills that they can use in the real world. Uh, under the right circumstances, right? Um, but it's also what the phenomenology of the act. So let me let me try and say. So usually the, uh, the the imaginary involves picturing in your mind. Like if I ask you right now, imagine a sailboat. Uh, are the sails up or not down? And you can say they're up or down. You can tell me that. Whereas if a child is imagining being Zorro, they are not picturing anything. They are picking up a stick, tying a blanket around them, and they're taking on the salient landscaping of Zorro, getting a taste of what it would be like to have Zorro's perspective, to have Zorro's identity, and see what that feels like for them in terms of skills they might want to cultivate identities and roles they might want to enter into it's it's, it's it overlaps with developmental play and so the phenomenology is also very fundamentally different um I'll, i use it when i'm teaching tai chi when i'm telling people to stand i say i want you to imagine that you're standing in a river and from your knees to your feet are sinking into the mud so you, you're trying to get that feeling of rootedness and then from your knees to around your navel is like flowing water because that's how you want that area of your body and from here up is like air you want to give it very little attention and it, it dissipating and that and that helps people get into the proper way of inhabiting their body in order to optimize it for you know tai chi chuan for sparring now th that that for example that's one example of how the imaginal helps uh, ratio but hirschfield and others just just you give you give you go into people the academics who are supposed to be the best right and you give them clear argument and evidence that they should start saving for the retirement you make sure they understand you allow them to voice any disputes you get agreement from them all you come back in six months none of them are saving for the retirement then you do the following and of course you have control groups and everything i'm just giving the the, the experimental group you ask them to Imagine their future self as somebody that they love and care about. That's somebody that they have a relationship and a responsibility to, a member of their family. You come back in six months and you'll find two things. They are now saving and the people that more vividly imagined that future self were able to save even more. And you say, so what? The ability to aspire to your future self, and this is Agnes Callard's argument, is central to rationality. Rationality is ultimately about self-correcting. It's about aspiring to get to become more rational, wiser than you are. And therefore, the ability to properly aspire is dependent on the imaginal, yet it is central to rationality. And therefore, they are inseparably bound together. And this is something I think Plato deeply, deeply understood because he'll give an argument and then he'll give the he'll give the parable of the cave and he'll put the two side by side. So you're what right? The imaginal and the rational are interwoven together. And like Ian said, we have we have now set them into this weird opposition, which doesn't actually make very much sense. I suppose it could be because of the prevalence of entertainment in which uh, the imaginary or the fanciful is taking priority over places in which people properly enact the imaginal. And I propose to you that those places traditionally have been ritual, the serious play of the imaginal in order to enhance people's sense of connectedness, especially to their future self.
<laughs> of course, there's an enormous amount that could be said about the imagination and its qualities and how it enables us to feel our way into the being of something other, whereas fantasy builds on the things that we already know, putting them together. Yes putting them together in a new sort of way. And, and I use the analogy of those children's books in which there are animals and the pages are divided into three uh, from top to bottom. And you can turn over as many as you want of each part and you get the head of a goat and the body of a seal and the tail of a, <laughs> a lion or something. And, and that's, that's fantasy. That's just putting together stuff that doesn't really exercise our imagination. But Wordsworth famously was thought um, in a way foolish, risk being the person Wittgenstein said we all should be, that for heaven's sake don't stop being foolish. What he did was he looked at a very um, bleak looking cliff or rock and in his contemplation of it, it became something more real than yes. when we just look. It's easy for us now at this stage in life, and this is what Wordsworth wrote about in his Ode on Intimations of Immortality, that as we grow up, we cease to be in immediate contact with things because we're in contact of our images of those things. We have a category. We go to a picturesque scene, and instead of being completely blown away by the beauty of it, we're already categorizing it. picturesque scene, mountains, that's right, a lake, and so on. And it's this process of getting beyond words and getting beyond our a categorical thought towards the very experience that we're having that is so important. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. 
The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. So, no, I I think that's right. And for me, um, I'm not here to criticize Woodsworth or (laughs) Or, or, or my favorite uh, poet, Rilke, who does something very similar. Uh, uh, a favorite so, right? poet of mine as well, by the way, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I guess for me, part of the question becomes uh, when I'm trying, because I, I, I not only am a scientist, I'm also a, a person who's in, involved with a lot of these emerging communities in which people are trying um, individually and collectively to build ecologies of practices for responding to the meaning crisis and doing it in good faith. I'm not talking about the charlatans. I'm not talking about the exploiters. I'm not talking about the gurus. I'm talking about people like Ray Kelly and uh, and others. Uh, and you know, and I've, I met recently with them in Vermont. Uh, we're trying to organize things together. What 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 I what I why I bring that up is to me the the question becomes: How do we reverse engineer and recommend? practices for people individually and collectively such that this is recoverable to them not only in thought but in um, actual conscious engagement with themselves other people in the world yeah okay great i'll stop i'll quite go (laughs) no 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 it's just that i i've got a couple of thoughts about that um the first is that I don't think that practices in themselves will ever achieve what needs to happen because they can still go on without the mind and heart of the person having fundamentally shifted. And in a way, the reason that religions have rituals and practices is that if you think your way into feeling those things, eventually, eventually, and live them in your life, then things will begin to change. But I'm worried that recommending practices to people, like if you do so much meditation per day, and if you you know, spend so long in nature, and you spend so long listening to music, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. But the trouble is that, as Einstein said, we can't get out of the particular mess we've produced with the same thinking that got us into it in the first place. And so we need to shift entirely what we are meaning by meaning. <laughs> and and another, another point that occurs to me is these, these people that you mentioned that are not charlatans and have something wise to say, I think it's an enormous load to place on any one individual that their ideas, their practices, their set of whatever it is, can really reach wisdom in the way that a tradition that has absorbed and evolved with and 
changed in the process. Ideas of many, many people, wise people who lived before us, that is more likely in the end to distill wisdom, which is why I think that I don't think it's necessarily very easy to do this, not impossible, but to do it without some sort of a tradition. It doesn't have to be Christianity, of course. It might be um, none of the monotheistic religions, good as they are. It might be Taoism uh, or Buddhism and so on, with their history, with their teachings, with their parables, with their practice. Uh, it just is, I'm a little more cautious about the idea that either you or I, however bright we are, can sort of really <laughs> take it upon ourselves to recommend to people how they can acquire wisdom. In fact, one of the points about wisdom is that it can't be acquired according to any process. Okay, this sounds like a great point of disagreement, as much as there are agreements, because I know you have non-theism, which sounds like, well, why don't you explain what non-theism is, or if you want to respond to that, John? Well, I do want to respond to it. First of all, I, I wasn't proposing practices in place of also fundamental philosophy. I was practice. I was proposing something very much like what you see in Stoicism, um, in which, or in Buddhism, or in Neoplatonism. You have both a fundamental philosophy and a set of practices that are integrated together. Um, uh, and okay. I also think whatever that integration is also has to be in deep and good faith dialogue with science, especially. Uh, the, the cognitive sciences, because those are uh, or what I would call cognitive science, because those are the ones directed towards helping us understand the very processes of meaning making. Um, so that's the, the first part of the response. I, uh, I think, and that's exactly what I'm trying to offer. I am trying, and, and this is how um, uh, a lot of these people are taking this, taking these practices up. They're not taking them up as just panacea practices. They're taking it up as, oh, no, no, no. We need to be doing. Uh, we need to be doing a lot of attentional, sensory motor, uh, a, a lot of stuff, and a lot of philosophical reflection, and a lot of dialogue, if we're going to get something and properly um, enter into dialogue with the existing wisdom traditions. So that's part of what I meant by uh, how these communities are working. Uh, for example, I was at uh, this conference was being held at the Maple Monastic Academy, which comes out of the Zen tradition is deeply influenced by it, but wants to talk to uh, some of the, you know, some of these emerging uh, uh, communities that have come out of, out of other traditions. Secondly, um, uh, I do think, uh, and we, I do think that we are in a place that might be like the place where some of these, and this is a, this is, this is uh, a somewhat preposterous proposal, <laughs> uh, but it's a historical, I think we're in a Kairos. I think we're at a, a pivot point, um, in our civilization because I think the meaning crisis, um, weakens us, disables us in the face of addressing the meta crisis, uh, in, in many powerful ways. Um, and, and, and then the meta crisis feeds back and makes the world seem bleak and inhospitable for people wrestling with meaning. So I think they're interlocked. And so I think we're in a kairos because I do think X risk is real and accelerating. And I do think the capacity for social media to misdirect us is real and accelerating. So my point is, it, when we're in a kairos, we may need to give birth to something new. Uh, all of these other great traditions did start somewhere. So, you know, Socrates and the Neoplatonic tradition, Jesus and the Christian tradition, Muhammad and the Islamic tradition, Siddhartha. I'm not claiming to be any of these figures, and I, I will not accept any 
any attempt of job description of that for me. But do, <laughs> do, but but and no and nor do I think that any of these I know Rafe very uh for example, Rafe ha Rafe as part of his practice makes sure that he steps out of the leadership role, other people. He also does not see him none none of the people I'm talking to see themselves. What they do think is that something is emerging right now and because of the urgency of the situation, um, we should try to interact with it as best we can uh, to try and see if we can steer it to becoming something that is a viable response for the growing demographic group of people who cannot find the legacy religions a proper home for the cultivation of wisdom. So that would be my response. Mm. Yes. Well, I, I wouldn't really disagree with that. I'm, and thank you for your clarification, right. um, which really just uh, confirms and what I hoped that you might say about, about this <laughs> It was really more a clarification because I think it's easy for people to think. I'm often asked, you know, after lecturing, so what do we do right away? You know, what do we do now? Yes, and, yes. And it's like the left hemisphere's job is to solve an immediate problem and it wants eight bullet points. And if we can do all of those, Phew, we can carry on business as usual. But my message yeah. is we cannot yeah. conceivably carry on business as usual. And I'm not talking about anything that can be um, summed up as a series of um, steps that we should take. Uh, there are steps that we should take that are very practical. We must stop poisoning the oceans. We must stop uh, destroying the forest. We must stop um, extinguishing the ways of life of indigenous peoples. We, we, there's many, many things we should do. We should stop actually attacking and destroying all that's best actually out of our own civilization. There are yes. many things that we, we need to do rather urgently. But that that's not really what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to think about the business of thinking and what we mean by meaning and that these need to be reconceived. And the way that I like to reconceive them is by unfurling over a, a long <laughs> stretch as we both acknowledge and I apologize for the length of what I write, but uh, over a long stretch. But, but, but Ian, you're a good writer. You're a good writer, so I mean, I, I don't, I don't want people, to, I don't want people to be put <laughs> off by that. I, I mean, I, so I just wanted to. Sorry for interrupting, but I don't. I know we, I, I we both, did, yeah, it's a long book, but you're a good writer, uh, so I don't, I, yeah, I don't want people to be put off by that. Anytime you want to interject a compliment, of course, that you're very <laughs> but, but really, what I'm saying is that I think it's a question of. Uh, at the beginning of the book, I say in a very short note to the reader, which is only a page and a half long, I, I think of it as taking somebody on a journey from which they can see something from different perspectives, and that that will in itself bring about a kind of aha moment. <gasps> wow, this is how it looks from here. And it's not because I've explained something and asked you to assent to a proposition. It's yeah. because I have suggested, I have indicated I've taken places and we're going to go over in a vast array of things from literature, from art, from philosophy, from, you know, all, all the rest. But I think it's that process of actually guiding people towards a different position that I think is key. I agree. And for me, that's the, that's where we're getting into perspectival and participatory knowing as opposed yes, to propositional yes. assent. Absolutely. Um, and I, and thank you for agreeing with my clarification. I just want to, uh, reciprocate i definitely did not mean a, uh, a bullet point i think dc schindler he, mm. he 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 indicates that that is one of the 
uh, in his uh, Plato's Critique of Impure Reason, he indicates that's one of the markers of mythology, the hatred of the Logos, which is <laughs> right a, a kind of intellectual impatience, mm. a, a, a profound kind of... No, I'm talking about that mm. the only thing that will resolve the meaning crisis is a way of life, the way Kierkegaard and Wittgenstein and Socrates exactly. Meant, exactly. It, meant it to be. But the problem I, I'm saying is, uh, where do people go mm. uh, to get you know, the sets of practices, transformations, and mm. community relations that afford them entering into a new way of life. That's, for me, the yeah. pressing question. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to, and as I see people trying to create ways of life within communities and a mm. reconciliation with the scientific worldview such that they can be properly cosmically homed, and that's that's what grabs my interest. That's what I want to try and support. Uh, yes, and I, I'd, if I may, I'd like to emphasize the idea of a way as never completed and always being newly undertaken. So it is yeah. a it's a process. I I, I, uh, I happen to believe that all the things we call things are in fact in process, and yeah. that it's therefore very important to see that process because. When we talk about a way and needing a way, and of course Taoism is named after that way, which is exactly. a practice that needs to be lived. And when um, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he didn't mean once you believe in me, you've got it. He meant there is a way yes. which you can enter into through through belief in what he was teaching and in what he showed by his example that would take one where one wishes to I, be I, able I, to go. I deeply agree with that, so much so that I have said, please carve on my tombstone neither nostalgia nor utopia. I do not think mm. uh, anything that claims to have uh, mm. a, a total grip and a resolution. In fact, mm. and perhaps this will slide into the topic, I think we need to think of the sacred as an inexhaustible source of intelligibility rather than as some state of perfection. Uh, oh, or goodness, completion. yes. Yeah, no, yes. I, I, I didn't think we'd find much to discuss there because we're completely in agreement about that. I just wanted to say, for me, uh, that's exa that's exactly what I see exemplified. I mean, uh, uh, that you know, you know, people talk about the Socratic method. There's no such thing. Mm. There is a Socratic mm. way. There's mm. a Socratic way of life, and mm. and Socrates was so uh, faithful to that way of life that he was mm. willing to die for it. But he does, mm. he, he undermines all attempts to replace mm. what he's doing, uh, with a method or any sort of totalizing vision. And mm. so for me, uh, and again, I practice, uh, uh, um, uh, like I don't consider myself a Taoist, but I've been practicing Tai Chi mm. Chuan and Qi Kung, uh, mm. for, for close to three decades. And, 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 and towards a point I was making earlier, I, I don't, let me say it this way. I don't think you should do Tai Chi Chuan without reading the Tao Te Chen, but I also think you shouldn't do Tao Te Ch read the Tao Te Chen without doing Tai Chi Chuan, okay. uh, because mm. for me that's like reading the Kama Sutra and never making love. You you okay. really aren't you really aren't getting and putting the two together, and so I, I'm interested then if you agree with me that. And by the way, having a process view of reality, uh, uh, you probably also influenced by Whitehead as as I am, and right, and and the idea that all all that part of what is needed, and this is part of what's um, the, the the third wave scholarship around uh, Neoplatonism and things like that, but 
is to get out of a thingy way of thinking. Absolutely. Well, right. that's, that's why my latest book is called The Matter with Things. <laughs> it's a pun on a whole range of things to do with our obsession. Oh, I didn't, get, I didn't get that second part. I got the um, matter. Our, our yeah, obsession right. with matter and our obsession with things and the matter with things now. So it, it, it tries to bring together a number of elements. But I, I just wanted to also throw into the mix and see if you agree with me here that uh, a lot of what we've been talking about is predicated typically uh, for the Western mind on the idea that there are things, good things, that we can do. And uh, I always think that we need to be careful of thinking that it's doing that causes change. It may be receiving and yes, 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 um, yes. there is something that I choose to term active passivity which is not just a kind of let it all hang out thing no. but actually a disciplined attention to the world um, I always come back to attention because I believe it's a moral act and changes the world and changes us who do the attending so it's a very very important thing and in that open attending we come to hear things and we can crowd them out. I sometimes give the image of a, you know, a gardener not actually being able to make a plant, of course, can't yes. possibly. No. But what a gardener can do is allow the plant to be stifled or remove things that would get in the way of the plants thriving. And that's really what a gardener is. And we are like that. Truths and spiritual depth and meaning and wisdom come to us and we either drive them out with our noisy uh, logicizing and rationalizing and uh, what they call monkey mind, as you know, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in oriental traditions. And that instead, we should cultivate silence, really. It's one of the things I like about where I, I live on sky is it's, it's uh, you know, palpably silent. <laughs> so in the analogy with the plant, the gardener is doing something, though. You're making an analogy about attention. So is there another analogy where it doesn't require doing because you're trying to show the act itself is not what we should be pursuing? You, 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 you're very good to pick that up. And uh, I was hoping that you wouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, it, is, it is like being, um, well, I think actually, you know, teaching is, is a responsive business. So partly you are saying things, but partly you're also receiving things and there's an exchange. And I think that a proper gardener attends to what the gardener is looking at, but doesn't rush in there kind of, I mean, um, pulling it up to see whether its root system is working properly according to the science is not a good way to improve the life of a plant. So there's a certain degree of standing off, I think is the way I would put it, of holding back, of being careful to observe rather than rushing in. Well, I want to answer, and, and, I, wanted to, and I wanted to, oh, sorry, did I cut you off Ian? Sorry. No, I was just going to say that it's something that um, rings a bell for me as a doctor, because in my training, I was constantly told, I mean, although doctors are always doing things, that um, first of all, one shouldn't rush in and apply things, um, <laughs> but also that in making a diagnosis, the first thing to do is to stand back and look and allow things to come to you, observe things, and only then do you even lay a finger on a patient. 
And only as a last resort do you send for an, um, an investigation to confirm or disconfirm the conclusion you've received. So even somebody as interventional as a doctor, if they're going to be good, has to be able to receive things. And as a psychiatrist, of course, which is what I ended up as, um, that's doubly true. Okay. okay, I want to respond because I do think cultivation is actually an excellent uh, a metaphor. Um, and I, I, if you'll notice, I always say the cultivation of wisdom. Uh, I'm very careful about that for, for precisely that reason. Um, and so, uh, first of all, the, the uh, you know, conversions across very different cultures at the heart of Neoplatonism is this idea of cultivating a profound receptivity. Um, Taoism, you have Wu Wei, which is the profound... Uh, receptivity, uh, be liking being like the uncarved block. Uh, it's uh, Ed, Ed Slingerland's book, Trying Not to Try. And that's what I would say to you, Kurt. Um, the, the doing is a doing that undermines itself as doing, um, which sounds like a paradox. But when you're doing like when when you if you want to get into the flow state and if you keep trying to get into the flow state, you will never get into the flow state. It doesn't mean being limply passive. You have to do in a way that undermines it as a doing so that you find yourself caught up in the flow state. And then you flow, which is not something you do. It is something you participate in. And I think getting that, what Stegmeier calls that proper orientation, which is, I think, what Ratio Religio is, is the, the key thing. And that's what Iris Murdoch in The Sovereignty of the Good, speaking from the Neoplatonic tradition, right, that the, the most important moral act the, the 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 core moral act is how giving things their proper attention, uh, and she makes that argument as the key to ethics and how it had been largely ignored by the analytic ethical tradition that had been growing up, right in the twentieth century, and and I think that is fundamentally right. I think um, and I think that and virtue ethics I think is moving towards that that and because Murdoch also said you know love is when you uh, when you finally acknowledge that something other than yourself is real. Uh, and, and and right and, and so it's this 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 ability to get oneself into a, a, a receptivity to flow, such that one is properly evolving one's attention to conform, in the Aristotelian sense, to the ligaments of reality. I think that's the ultimate thing that. Uh, uh, I'm trying to talk about a lot when I'm talking about relevance, realization, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I just like to add a little um, rider to all of this, which is that there is Wu Wei is puzzling to Westerners initially because it means not doing, basically. And, yeah. and, and there is a not doing, which is quite different from passively not doing something, that is the yeah. other side of doing. Just as there's an unknowing, which is not ignorance that comes before knowing, but the unknowing that comes after knowledge. Sure. And there's an innocence that is not the same as the innocence of a child, but an innocence that can only come after deep experience of life and is what one recognizes in truly deep wise spiritual figures i agree and, and uh i argue that you know socrates claiming that he knows that he does not know comes to fruition in mm. nicholas of cusa's learned ignorance yes uh right e exactly yes. that and and yes it's a it's a profound way of and for me it's a profound way of, of being able to exercise this discernment plotinus talks about the the nothingness that is a privation mm. and then the no thingness that is a, a superlative the the really real and yeah. that 
you need a certain proper kind of educating of your sensibility and receptivity to be able to discern nothingness from no thingness. Oh, and when you can, yeah. when you can do that, that leads to a very, well, a, a, one of the most profound kinds of connectedness there, there can possibly be. And that emptiness, um, yes, th- that is, uh, famously, um, sought through Buddhist practices is, isn't, as you say, is not an emptiness in the sense of the just nothing, nothing, nothing exactly. positive. It's, it's the, uh, the, the word in Sanskrit, um, um, shunyata, has the root svi, which relates to a seed that is swelling and it's interior yes. and life is coming forth, or a womb, the emptiness of a womb that will be the fertile space. Exactly, exactly. And, and the root word for compassion in the Hebrew tradition is being womb-like uh, for exactly the same uh, that's reason. That's lovely, yes. Uh, so, so, yeah, that's exactly it. But the, my, the point I was making is, uh, to your point about Westerners, like you have to develop, this isn't quite the right word, but I, if you'll allow me to pour a lot through conveyance into the word, you have to develop the taste for that difference. Um, and and it, it, like, it's not a thought. It, it, it's more of that. I mean, it requires thought, but it's more. But like for me, I, di- I could not understand Wu Wei until I'd been practicing Tai Chi Chuan for mm. like over six years because when I, and, and I get, oh, that's it. That's it there. And, 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 and what's amazing is that's what comes out when you're sparring. If you try to spar, you'll lose. But if you wu-wei into sparring, you'll do a great job. Wu-wei uh, means that, be in the uh, full state? Well, it means that pregnant emptiness that Ian's talking about that gives birth to what is needed appropriately at the moment. Okay, and that's called no-thingness. As well, it's well, no-thingness. I'm not a sinologist, but I, I think that Wu Wei means non-action. It means the, yeah, it not, means not doing, not but, doing but, exactly. But, but but the metaphors are still they're they're metaphors of pregnant yes. Em- yes. emptiness. They give birth. Yes. Uh, they, and, and when I was proposing, they line up with uh, very much the learned ignorance and the no thingness of the Neoplatonic tradition, Ni- Nicholas of Cusa, Plotinus, etc. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a perennialist. I'm not claiming that they're all saying exactly the same thing. But I'm saying there's deep convergence from very different traditions and histories that makes plausible the place they get to. Well, the concept of the perennial philosophy can be, on the one hand, exaggerated, and on the other, under-respected. Uh, yes, yes. There is a yes, great yes. deal in common between the traditions. They are, of yes. course, not not exactly the same. And that's the wonderful thing about people's different yeah. traditions and different perspectives, looking at something that is recognizably the same. But from each perspective, something new will be added to our understanding of what it is. In fact, that's my idea of what ob- objectivity is. It's not um, a rather peculiar state in which one denies the humanness of the observer who is the only one who knows all this stuff that one's calling objective. <laughs> that would be a very, very strange way of looking at the world, not necessarily revealing of truth. But what seems important is not to be, um, uh, as it were, solely indebted to one perspective, but to be able to see a number of perspectives and to allow them to complement one another. And that, in that sense, one of them will be this one in which one is it's trying to eliminate 
forcibly one's own person in the encounter with whatever it is. It's a strange thing to do, but it, it's worth doing. But it doesn't in the end, uh, as modern physics tells us, it doesn't in the end um, work out as the, the best way to understand the material or immaterial world. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I think um, I think uh, I, I'm deeply influenced by Nagel on this. The attempt to understand... Yes, I, uh, the view from, the nowhere. from nowhere, but uh, but in the absurd, the mm. essay of the absurd, he ba basically argues that the view from nowhere also generates the absurd, right? Yes. As the perspective of yes. clash, and so there's something there's something paradoxical if our, our if our fundamental guiding metaphor of objectivity is the same one that gets us into finding reality absurd, because science is depending on the intelligibility. Yes, and, and I just want to gloss what I said because it's very, very important that I'm not misunderstood. I don't think that the term objectivity has no job to do. I think it's a very important yeah. term. And what it means is arriving at the most rich, most true perception of what it is one's looking at. And that means not allowing oneself to be swayed by some completely extraordinary biased way of looking at the world. So I'm, I'm equally opposed to that. And just because the clinically detached, impossible view of the non-person is not possible, doesn't mean that it's free for all for any point of view. Not at all. Some points of view are dreadful, noxious. Um, not know. only untrue, but damaging. Other points of view may be rich, welcoming, and unfolding of life and vitality and creativity. Yeah, I, I, and again, I'm in agreement with you, uh, um, because I was not I was not proposing a rejection of the notion of objectivity. I was no, no, no. I was proposing to reject a particular model that has held captive. You know, Wittgenstein's I, I, Wittgenstein's idea about a picture holding us captive. Yes. Uh, no, um, I knew you weren't saying that. I just wanted, for everyone's sake, to make clear that neither of us were, were yeah, really heading no, down that, that particular rabbit hole of postmodernism in which every every point of view is equally valid. Absolutely no, no, not. No, no, no. Some points no, of view no, no. are utterly absurd. Others are extraordinarily deep. So, so my view, my view on this is deeply influenced by a confluence of sort of of, of uh, the the third wave of, of Platonic scholarship and Marlo Ponti, um, and yep. the idea. Uh, first of all, so here's a thing, and first of all, realize that you can never see the whole thing. You can never see the whole thing, no matter where you look at it, right? There are multiple aspects, and they're not only multiple aspects in terms of its visibility. There's multiple tactile aspects. There's multiple auditory. There's multiple uses of this, and then what you start to realize is that there is multi-aspectuality, and then not only is there multi-aspectuality within a person, there is multi. There are multiple perspectives on any one thing. This is why dialogical reason is so important. And then for me, what you're trying to do, and this is Marleau-Ponty's sort of critique of Husserl, you're trying to find the through line. Because what you realize is that, right, the, these, this doesn't come off as a cacophonous, you know, cubist painting. There's a melody here. And it's not, this is not logically identical to this or this or this, but nevertheless, there is a through line of intelligibility, which John Rusin calls a musicality to it. And for me, and, and, and it's inexhaustible. Mm. It's inexhaustible. 
That yes. links to the idea of the person as continuous. Um, we've yes, got the mistaken yeah. idea that our lives are made up of moments, like time slices, but they're not. They are like a melody, as as Henri Bergson said, that one's personality has this exactly. nature of a, a melody, which is always unfolding. Um, and and that um, that's a very important insight, well, I think. You, well, wait, but thank you, because that's the point I want. What, mm. for me, objectivity is, when I have this melody, as you put it, in yes. sync with that melody, yeah, so I, that there I, is a <laughs> continuity of contact, yeah, so yeah. that I can, I, I can, within my finite transcendence, as how as Highland puts it, I can disclose as much of that inexhaustible multi-aspectuality and multi-multiple perspectives as I possibly can within a integrated intelligibility. That that's. That's the proposal that's coming out of people like Marla Ponti, how we should re-understand, and I think it's actually Plato's proposal. Uh, I think I think I think Gonzalez and Highland and, and, and Kirkland and all of the, the third wave are right on about that. And I think that is how we should start. And that's a not that's a non-thingy way of thinking, Ian, because the through line is not any aspect. It is not any perspective, precisely because it is that which binds all the aspects and all the aspects all the perspectives together. And for me, one needs all those perspectives. Those what um, Husserl called adumbrations of a thing. One needs to see it from as many. Exactly, exactly, as exactly, exactly. But, but without, uh, as I say, this ridiculous idea that anything goes. Um, do, do you know the uh, the Japanese Zen garden, Ryanji? Uh, it, it's a very beautiful garden. It has 15 rocks set out in the in the sand. And from wherever you stand in the garden, the most you can ever see is 14 of them. <laughs> okay, so I don't know I love that. that. <laughs> Nicholas of Cusa, when he writes the vision of God and he sends it to the monastery, he sends a painting. And no matter where you stand in the room, it looks like the painting is looking at you. And then he says, first, yeah. everybody do that and then do the following. One monk stands in one place and another monk stands in the farthest other place. And they both claim that the picture is looking at them. And then he says, but you know, go, go ahead. No, that's just true of any painting where you. Exactly. You know, it, it's, it's nothing special. It's just this phenomenon. Oh, the eyes are following. No, they're not. It's just that wherever you look, you think the, the face is looking at you. So he, 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 well, I think that's the point. Because uh, then he says, now try to, what would it be like to be able to realize this all at once? And of course you can't, but he says, that's what it is to have the vision of God. It's not to see God, it's to see the way God sees, right? It's to see that through line that you can't actually see because it makes all seeing possible, right? And so this is again, the non-thingness that is not privation, but is the inexhaustible fount with which from which intelligibility flows and flows. And I think for me, that has been that has been my fundamental phenomenologically rich and reflective experience of the sacred to exactly find that. And for me, Goethe is is talking about that when he's looking at the plants. And I see the same thing when when you in the Platonic dialogues, you have this quest, right, to find the virtue, but you never get to the answer, but you get the through line running and all that sort of thing. For me, and like you said, that's when I find the sacred in another person. When I realize that 
there's they're multi-aspected, multifaceted, but there's a through line and I can hear it and taste it and follow it, but I can never complete it or grasp it totally. And if I say that to her, I've destroyed the relationship. So that would be the, the most foolish thing to do. But as you said, everything is like that. And that means we can fall in love with being again. It's not like, for me, that's a real possibility for people. I'm sorry, that, 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 that's for me what I, I, I think is if we could enable people to read through a way of life to fall in love with being again, I think that would be a deep way of responding to the meaning crisis. It's certainly a rather nice way of expressing it, I agree. And love is probably going to be part of how one achieves that. Um, and you, I, you touched on that idea of the not just the way God sees, but of the way we see God. And I'm trying to think who it was now. Was it? it I'm not sure it was Eckhart. It might have been Bonaventure or somebody who said, "You know, the eye with which I see God is Eckhart." Same, Eckhart, it's Eckhart. It, it is Eckhart. Yeah. It's the same eye with which God sees me. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, yes, uh, that's a, a a good point. But how on earth um, are we to if if our if the subject we're talking about is how to bring this about, how do we, how do we help bring it about? Or perhaps that isn't the question, or perhaps it's not even a good question. Well, I think it's whether or not it's a well-formed question or not. I think it's probative. Um, one of the books that's had the most profound influence on me is *Religion and Nothingness* by Nishitani, and he it's a fall and it's a masterpiece, and it's rightly regarded so. And it's a follow-up to his earlier book, *The Self-Overcoming of Nihilism*. And to give you a flavor of it. There's another quote very similar to Eckhart's, which was uttered by Nietzsche. Uh, if you stare long enough into the abyss, it begins to stare back into you. Nietzsche came upon something, but he gets to the edge of it, but he doesn't, it doesn't flip over for him. And what, uh, what Nietzsche Tani proposes is, um, he, he proposes that, and I, I'm interested because you might have a really interesting take on it. Nietzsche doesn't doubt deeply enough. It, it, it's almost like the left hemisphere is capable of this profound doubt, but it can never doubt its own authority or its own preeminence or something yes, like that. Yes, very much so. Yes, yes, yes. And and, and he proposes like one that one of the practice one of the points of Zen is to get the great doubt that drops you beneath, and then that profound resonance, belief, the propositional tyranny, gets disclosed to people. Mm. And I think I think that's part of what needs to happen right now. I, I'm not saying I'm not rec I'm recommending Zen. I'm yeah. saying we have to get something in which we 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 live in the hermeneutics of suspicion, where we doubt everything except we doubt the perspective, the stance exactly. from which that happens. Exactly. And I've been trying to figure out the semantic, philosophical jujitsu move, right, in order to get that doubt to actually turn on to itself in a profoundly transformative way without, of course, destroying people's sanity or lives or putting them into a psychotic break or anything ridiculous like that. Uh, no, of course. But one of the things that can break us out of that doubting of everything um, is the experience, the transcendent experience of something very real. And it's yes, so in, yeah. in a way that comes as part of 
it's one of these self-referential things that you can't break into and unfortunately because you can't cause this experience to happen to you but you can put yourself in the way of it happening yes, or you can yes. exclude it and what worries me is that the way we live now with our attention so fragmented and ourselves so bound up in verbal noise and discussion uh, about you know all the things we're talking about one of the things that uh, troubles me actually about where this conversation is going is that the wise person stops talking at this point because really we're entering the territory where you cannot talk about it so um, but we drown out the possibility of being there for uh, the, whatever we mean by the sacred, even for the beautiful, because you need to attend to it deeply, not just sort of allow it to be in the background somewhere. You actually have to have an encounter with it. And it's that that changes changes one's one's way of being, I suppose. I agree with you. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I do think what there is an intermediary, which is to try and find people that are exemplifying an encounter with the really real. Yeah. And there's a there's a large proportion of the population in which that even happens spontaneously, yeah. at least thirty at least thirty percent, perhaps mm -hmm. forty. So the, the, we've got a culture that silences them, but it doesn't have to be the way. There's no necessity for that. No, you're right. So for me, it, it, it's beyond a it's beyond a mystical experience. It's a transformative experience. So um uh it's an experience in which one has many of the features of a mystical experience, the oneness, the 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 the, the, the hereness, the nowness, the altogetherness, the depth of realness, but it's ultimately ineffable, but it carries with it um, um, all the markers of being real such that people do the following they will they'll do something weird normally when we have an aberrant state of consciousness that doesn't fit into our everyday consciousness we use that to say it's not real like a dream or being drunk but they do the opposite they they have these experiences and they say that was really real and exactly. all of this is an illusion yeah. Yeah. and they then tr they say i they mm. the must is not a compulsive must it's what i call autonormativity that they, they, I, I need, I need, I profoundly need to change who I am and how I relate to the world. Maybe my occupation, my career, they will profoundly change their lives because they want to be closer to that really real. They want to conform more to it. And Yaden's work shows by many objective measures, their lives get better. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what I mean by uh, a, tra a, a transformer. And uh, Steve Taylor has a book, I think it's called Waking Up, where he talked he canvases all of this. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a scientifically profound book, but it's great for just gathering all these accounts together. No, it's extraordinary how common these experiences of um, well, it even can be described as encounters with God, actually, by a lot of people, yeah. even though they don't necessarily believe in God at all. But they call them encounters with God or with the cosmos, with the ultimate truth, or whatever it is, and they're surprisingly common. Well, and, and, and they are not predicted by any kind of mental disorder, and neither neither do they generate any kind so, of mental no, disorder. Yeah. No, no, the very important point you've already made, which is that when people have hallucinations and delusions, when they are better, they count them as unreal, and they see that they're better off without them. But 
after these experiences, they don't. They they think this is the re this was the reality, and it often has long term uh, changing effects on their lives. Exactly as you say. So yeah. it's something that needs to be taken seriously. And there is research, and some of it you've probably been mentioning, which which yeah. shows how very real and important this is. So we discount this um, because we're told that clever people, bright people, intelligent people don't think like this. It's just some um, ill effect of something misbehaving in one's brain but it it's not an adequate account yeah and, and i i go over both i've given talks on this at conferences i go over it in awakening from the meaning crisis on higher states mm. of consciousness mm. I, i've talked about it at yale etc you can make a very good case for this is actually a justifiable claim by people mm. um I don't hang too much on the propositions they come back with uh, because mm. they, the propositions vary all over the place. But that sense, I've done an experiment in my lab where we like, what's the relationship? Nobody did this, which we thought was, I thought was astonishing. Is there a correlation between having mystical experiences and how meaningful you find your life? You would have thought somebody had bothered to test that. It mm. shows you the ignorance of our orientation that that has not never even been tested. We tested it, a huge Amturk study. It is predictive. It's coral, it's correlative. Right. And, but it's not the particular phenomenology, phenomenological content. It's the insight machinery. It's, it's very much in a continue. Think about when you have an insight, right? And you, oh, and, and then you know why you were wrong before, but you can't know that until you go through it. Right. It's, it's that, it's that kind of thing. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, a, a systemic insight yes. and a systematic okay. insight. And what's interesting is that the area in which we have aha moments, the right superior temporal gyrus and sulcus, is very close to the area that has been repeatedly found to be associated with transformative religious experience. The, exactly. The, the right temporoparietal junction, effectively. So, I mean, that's interesting at, at, at every level. But I feel, Kurt, you need to help us reorientate because we're talking about things that well, are I just want to, I just wanted to, to talk about. <laughs> I just wanted to follow up, though, because mm. right, if we agree that this is a real phenomenon, and if we agree that it's not hallucinatory or something that we can dismiss, then, like, and then if we can also find, you know, first of all, if we can support that culturally, and also watch people unfolding exemplary lives, this is sort of the Socratic proposal. Don't, you know, you know, you know, here's a beautiful life, right? The unexamined life is not worth living. Here's a, here's a beautiful life. And I think that's the kind of thing that can attract people into what we're talking about. I, I agree. We can't, we can't give them, here's how you do it. But what we can do, we, we can, we can cultivate, cultivate the people who are living exemplary lives and create, you know, communities where they thrive that attract people. I propose we could do that. I, I agree, and in, in a way, you've you've given a description of what I aim to do in my work, which is to take people where they see this is a beautiful vision of life, and it makes much more sense. Okay, so here's what an atheist may say, or an extremely staunch materialist may say, that sure, you had an experience of something real, but your experiences can be misleading, and just because you had potentially some psychedelic and you feel like so-and-so is real, well, that can be triggered, let's say, with transcranial stimulation and other methods so i can make you feel like something's real when it's not so why attribute realness to it just say it was interesting so here's an example sam harris said that he took an extreme amount of mushrooms i'm not saying anything that he hasn't said publicly and then blindfolded himself yeah. went into a room and he said he felt like he was encountering something else but then 
during and afterward, he said, well, I was saying, well, this is just me on drugs. And so I allowed it to take me, whatever it was, some tiger or some other being, I allowed it to take me from realm to realm, but I didn't ascribe any realness to it. That also reminded me of this quote, I believe, Ian, you mentioned it the last time you and John spoke on the Rebel podcast from Kars, someone who Heidegger said was the most important philosopher. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Well, James Kars. I didn't know that. Heidegger knew Kars? I, I, I think it's a different person. Okay, okay. You said that Heidegger spoke at his funeral. John, you said Heidegger spoke at his funeral. As oh, no, that's, uh, that's Max Scheler. Okay, Max Scheler. Then, then maybe it was Scheler. Heidegger spoke at Max Scheler's funeral and said that, that Max Scheler was the greatest European philosopher of his generation. Um, which was uncharacteristically humble of Heidegger. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the connection was uh, reconstructive memory. I had mentioned that Kars had just recently died, I believe. Oh, uh, so, okay. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. and that's uh, yeah. that your memory put them together in that fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So my two points are then Shaler, perhaps said, I think it's Shaler, that you need to open yourself up to knowledge rather than having knowledge change you. Something like that. And it made me think, okay, is it that someone like Sam Harris is so closed to the divine that even if he encounters it, he wouldn't see it and he discounts it? Well, that was just one thought that came through my head. And then the next one was we're focusing so much on the nourishing effects of these mystical experiences. Mm. But there is such a thing as totalizing fear, terror, and horror. Bad trips, for example, whether or not they're even trips. And Mm. so then what's happening there where one feels like, yes, what I've encountered is real and I'm terrified and i don't want that so I, those are two separate points that i just wanted to lay out there as potential jumping I, I, off i think but, i think they're related but i'll let ian go first i think they are related points yeah yeah maybe they are um i think on the first point um uh, i would say uh yes of course um things that one um one's one's mind brings before one may be deceptive but but then often they're also real, and it, it's not it's not enough to say well we just dismiss it, because sometimes it's going to produce something very important, and sometimes it isn't. The, the same is true of every way of arriving at knowledge. Reason can lead you down um, blind alleys, or what I call rationality, um, leading one's life by pure logic um, reduces it to to a meaningless mess, as demand. Uh, Masio's uh, description of a patient called Elliot. He had to work everything out from first principles. Yeah, yeah. Had no understanding of life, whatever. So reason, but I wouldn't say, well, in that case, I'm not going to use reason. And, and I, I have the same view about intuition. You know, psychologists are um, amused by developing very clever little scenarios in which one's normally extremely helpful intuition is deceived. There are going to be such things. I can show you optical illusions that are completely unbelievable. Are those two squares on that checkerboard really the same? They can't be, but they are. But I've never heard anyone after seeing a very good optical illusion say, well, that does it. I'm not going to use my, open my eyes then from now forwards because they might be wrong. So it, it, the, the mode in which something comes to one doesn't say either it's got to be right or it's got to be wrong. We need to examine the experience, see what its effects on us are. And I'm, what I'm suggesting is that experiences that have long-lasting benign effects on somebody are not nothing. And they are good, which is what the person believes they are. Because what we want to say is the definition of this good experience. It's not that it leads to good consequences. 
So uh, it, it's easy to dismiss things, but that's the lazy way. You have to actually say, well, some things no doubt deserve to be dismissed. Some things don't. Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, I, I want to buttress that. First of all, yeah, uh, I, I was not... I was not purporting to argue, give an argument from the authority of a particular kind of experience. I think I think our culture is, I, I don't think he is either. I, I think our culture is beset by trying to find the magical faculty that will give us certainty. This is a Cartesian wet dream that we should abandon once and for all. Um, and also the other the other project, which is just this, the flip side of it, finding the part, the faculty that we should demonize and scapegoat for all of our failures. I think we should give up both of those projects. They don't comport well with how cognition works or intelligence works or consciousness works. So, and I'm not saying you're saying that, Kurt, I'm just responding to your proposed uh, perspective from the atheist. Um, secondly, um, I said, I am suspicious of the claims, the propositional claims that come out of the content of these experiences, precisely because they vary in the way you say. Um, what I make an argument for is we have good reason to believe that these experiences are actually on a continuum with insight experiences, flow experiences, the experiences by which we are optimally sort of getting a, 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 a meta-optimal grip on the world, uh, where, where we are engaging in a kind of direct sensory motor feedback with the world, etc. Yes, Harris is right. There probably is no tiger in the room. What? Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Was he, but he doesn't bother to ask what might have been happening. He just says, well, here's the proposition that I came up with. It's false. Therefore, everything was wrong. Well, how do we know? How do we know what, like, why doesn't he bother to ask, why is a tiger being thrown up in my altered perception of the room? Yeah, there's no tiger there. But what if you were to say, what, 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 what if what's the, the, the very act of coming up with the tiger was connecting areas of cognition that if he bothered to explore, could give him some more fundamental insight into how he is perceiving or framing things. That's how many people within these wisdom traditions would respond to him. They would say, well, why did you stop there? 
Mm. Why did you stop there? Why did you why why didn't you talk to other people? And I mean, when you when you're when you're trying to determine if anything else is real, do you stop after one moment of thought, or do you do do you do a lot of science? Yeah. Mm. Firstly, just to clarify for the record, I don't know if what he encountered was a tiger, or, but it was some other creature or being, and I don't want to spread yeah. misinformation. But that's that. And then third, and then secondly, you mentioned why didn't you talk to other people? Okay, interesting. I was speaking to Diana Pasolka who's a professor of religion, and she was saying, Kurt, something that's missing in all of these modern forms of religion, which are spiritual but not religious, is sangha, so a community. Yes, totally, totally. That's what I mean by autodidactic. She said that that's even the answer to Plato's cave. Then I asked her, well, is that in Plato's cave? She said, no, it's in the Republic, and she gave me some explanation. But regardless, from my understanding of the non-theist position, or Neoplatonism. I think Pajot says, you can't simply resurrect a religion from reading books. How is it that we become Neoplatonists? Is it truly a religion that you're enacting? Well, first of all, I, I, wanna, I wanna first of all pick up on the first point. Yeah, uh, and I don't mean to be misspeaking if I'm incorrectly No, 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 no. I mean, uh, this, is, this is all, this is at the core of the whole dialectic into Dialogos project that I've engaged in, the after Socrates, the, which is convergent from, with all of this increasing information that when people are, that reason, I'll use Ian's word then, is uh, evolved to be carried out dialogically, not monologically, multi-perspectively, not monoperspectival, right? That we do not have a monadic self, we have a fluid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's some of that evidence? Okay, you are, you're familiar with the Waste and Selection Task. Bright people, smart, educated people, you give them a very simple, Reasoning experiment, and only 10% of them get it right. Reliably, no replication crisis on this. Robustly, take the exact same thing. Let there be four people, and they're allowed to talk to each other. The success rate goes reliably from 10% to 80%. Yeah, yeah. Reliably. That is, and that is not exhaustive. Read uh, The Enigma of Reason by Mercer and Sperber. Others, this just mm. overwhelming evidence that we have We have this mana, and that's my point to, to Harris never questions I mean, it, 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 uh, at least the Harris of your example. Maybe it's not the actual Harris, right? But I, I don't want to. I, that's the name I'm going to use, because right? Does, he doesn't question question the monological frame from which he is giving an answer. And the point is, well, that's not how reason evolved to work. Reason should be carried out, and this is, a, I think, the, the core Socratic claim, dialogically. Now, there's dialogue. There's the dialogos with other people. But you also have to practice the dialogos within the psyche. This is, again, a proper platonic idea. And those two dialogues, those two forms of dialogos, they have to be resonant with each other in a profound way. And for me, that is, that is most properly how to try and be as reasonable as I possibly can. Will it give me certainty? No. But as Ian said, nothing does. Right. If your criteria is, well, that could fail, therefore I reject it, then you are an absolute solipsistic skeptic. Exactly. And then if you, and if I ask you, okay, what do you do to do? Well, I talk to other people. I reflect them. I ask questions. I like, well, do that with these experiences too. Nobody's telling you take the experience and then just accept it. Take these experiences, put them in this framework, make sure independent of this frame of these experiences that this framework is working profoundly to help you self correct catch your bias, catch your flaws, and then integrate the two together. And for me, that's what make it 
much more like a religion than just a belief system in the modern enlightenment yep. sense of a belief system. Did that answer your question, uh, Kurt? Generally, it takes me days of reflection to realize <laughs> if something answered my question. Fair enough. That's, exa that's exactly right. That's exactly the right answer. <laughs> no, I, I just think your point... No, well, first of all, I think that it cannot be overstated how important that point of community is at the core of religion. And it's what is one of the roots of what we started by talking about, the meaning crisis. Yes. Meaning is held by communities that have common histories, common narratives, common myths, and um, a sense of belonging, which is, you know, you talked, I think, uh, um, uh, about, uh, John, about the, um, I, I don't know what you called it, de-domiciled or something, but I mean, it basically- Domiciled, yeah. Yeah, yeah domiciled. We, we, no, we no longer have a home. We no longer yeah. feel we belong somewhere. And that sense of belonging is part of meaning. And one gets it from belonging to a functional family and belonging to a functional society. There is no such thing as an atomistic individual. We emerge from society and we give back to society and we are in constant communion with society and what a religion does is to strengthen those bonds and the feelings of empathy which lead to extraordinary effects on cognition on emotion on well-being including physical well-being and mental well-being obviously and the, the evidence about this is so strong and it's not widely known but i give it in the very last part of um of, of the, the matter with things. So I think that's a very good point. I think another point is that we, we shouldn't overemphasize uh, the importance of, uh, you know, mystical moments. We may yes. or may not have them. I mean, a very important thing is that many spiritual people have never experienced these things, but are deeply good and wise. So there, uh, and many people ha who have achieved that state say, you know, if you have a, some sort of a, you know, a vision or something, that's great, but really forget about it and go back to getting on with religion <laughs> so it, it's a yeah. kind of icing on the cake it's the in a way it's slightly too much of a lure for people nowadays oh you know i want some sensational experience but it's not really about the sensational experience uh, the next thing i'm sorry because i've been yeah. holding back on a yeah, vast yeah, number of, yeah, 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 yeah go on. I'm trying yeah, to say yeah, them please. very very quickly um, another is that i think that what happens when one takes psychedelic drugs people have sometimes said to me does this not shut down the left hemisphere and release the right not at all in fact um, most um, uh, aberrant versions or or, <laughs> or or peculiar versions unusual versions of reality in the sense of hallucinations and delusions anyway come from the left hemisphere something i go into the very fast part of the matter with things but um, i think what happens is that the frontal lobes are relatively shut down and i think there's imaging evidence that this is the case so this lower um circulation in the frontal lobes, and of course what the frontal lobes are above all is a filter and when you stop filtering what the brain is privy to then you get good and bad. You may be lucky and have a good experience. You may have a terrible experience. And, and in fact, I believe the terrible, although the literature tends to stress the good experiences, terrible experiences, bad trips are under-reported in the sense that they're not talked about, but they're very real and they happen an awful lot. So I, I just wanted to make, you know, a few points that we're getting off too much onto emphasizing, you know, the very 
unusual. And to go back to this idea of imagination in which you see into things that you thought you knew and then realize that you know them for the very first time. And that experience is a sacred experience. So I want to, I want to pick up on two things that Ian said. Um, that's what I, I, that's what I meant when I said I wasn't holding these experiences up as authoritative. And I'm also not saying everybody should have them. What I'm saying is we need to have ways of life that uh, properly hone them and that, that are beautified by them. I don't think everybody has to have them, but <laughs> that, that, like, uh, but um, we should have ways of life in which many people can benefit from some people having them, is what I would say. Yes. And then the second thing I would say is, um, look, uh, you know, you know this, Kurt, neural network, overfitting to the data. What do you have to do? You have to do dropout, turn off half the nodes, or you have to throw noise in, or Stefan and Dixon. People are impassing on an, in, and they, uh, on an insight problem, and you literally put visual static into it, and they get the insight, or the, 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 the mild mind wandering that helps people have an insight. Yep. You, have to you, you have to throw some noise, and the noise, noise isn't, Noise is noise. It's destructive. It's frame breaking. That's horrific. That's why the the the, the sacred always has a, a terrific or horrific aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Awe is connected to awful for good reason, right? But throw. But you you know the reverse. Mm -hmm. If you don't ever throw any noise into the neural network, what happens? It overfits to the data. It doesn't generalize. It fixates. It gets locked into a local minima. I propose to uh, Woodward and other people do that. We have we have. You know, we can have psychedelic experiences or meditative experiences or sensory motor experiences that break that do that massive frame breaking. But it's not just the frame breaking. That I don't think people should just have these experiences. In yeah. fact, I'm I'm arguing the exact opposite. We need to have a proper, like a sapiential sacred community around them, so that that frame breaking is compensated with a lot of resources for frame making. That's what I'm trying to propose. That's what I'm trying to propose. Um, I just wanted to comment briefly on, I agree with all that you said, um, that the idea of putting interference in is not that, uh, I just want to distinguish between two possibilities. One I believe is wrong. Um, and that is the idea that somehow Distraction is what is no, no, good no, no. going on there. What is good there is that you, at last, are not sure that you know. Yes. So we're constantly going familiar, familiar, familiar. I get it. I know what it is. And that's a very uncreative state. That is what the left hemisphere um, brings to us, a representation of life that is clear and comprehensible and sanitized. And what the in, 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 um, informational kind of distraction is, is, is it's not the distraction in itself. It's the, the rattling of our cage that we don't actually know what's yes, going exactly. on here. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. I, yeah. I, 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 I knew I, it I was. <laughs> yeah, I don't want. I don't want. I, I, I don't want Elliot's distracted from distraction by distraction. What I meant is that 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 you disidentify from the framing enough that it can break up. You put criticality exactly. into the system, exactly, so, so it can self-organize anew. That's what I would say. I completely agree. Yeah. Where does faith enter into this? When I hear much about unknowing, I was reading about Nicholas of Cusa, and someone said either commentary on him or he said, you must strive upward unknowingly. Where does faith well, enter into this? 
So what are you, I know you have uh, a partner um, and you uh, are, you know, what if I ask you, are you going to be faithful to her? And I'm not asking you to divulge privacy, right? But <laughs> are you talking to me or are you? I'm talking to you. I mean, you, you're, you, if you love somebody, there is a call to faithfulness. Does that mean you have a complete account of them? No, that's mm. ridiculous. Does it mean you have an absolute certainty about them? No, they're going to surprise you again and again and again. Meet people that have been married 25 years, deeply in love, and, and they'll say, man, my partner can surprise me again and again. I never, I, it's never done. It's never done. This is my, this is my experience, right? So faithfulness, faith doesn't mean I have certainty. It doesn't mean that I have a, a completion of you, that I grasp you, that I can manipulate you at will. In fact, it means Oh, it doesn't mean any of those. It means that I have bound myself to you so that I understand that there are truths about you that will not be disclosed to me unless I'm willing to undergo transformation in relationship to you and, and allow you to do the same with me. Was a, these are transformative truths that are disclosed by maintaining a continuity of contact and an understanding that we are going to reciprocally open with each other. Learned ignorance is the place at which you are most able to do that with the ground of being. You are, you are reciprocally opening to its inexhaustibleness and you are being reciprocally transformed by that opening again and again. It's not that you come to some, some conclusive statement that you can make. It is the same kind of sense you have of the depth of connectedness you have to somebody you have been faithful to and it, it grows the longer you've been faithful. And they've been faith. The, the language that we've been together. I don't. I, we should give up the idea of faith as the assertion of things without evidence. There's all kinds of evidence in your relationship. But if I was to say, could you deduce or induce or abduce that you should stay with your partner because of this evidence? You'd say, no, that's ridiculous. It's way more than that. And that's exactly the faithfulness element. Ian, this reciprocal yes. opening, the way that I imagine, or the way that one generally imagines God is that, yes, you can open up to God, but it's not as if God is changing because of you. Now, I know that that means that there's a static view of God, and perhaps we should move well, away we from that. Yeah, we don't know that. Um, I actually believe with Whitehead that the world by which he meant the whole experiential cosmos and God are coming into being together reciprocally, mm -hmm. and that we therefore have a part to play, a very important part. So it actually matters how we respond to the world, what we make of it, what we see in it, and what we give back to it. I'm just going to go and put a light on. I didn't want to do it while John oh, was... Oh, yes. Because it seems a bit rude, but I'm just going sure. to go and... <laughs> Not sure that it'll make any difference, but night is falling here. Um, uh, you, you're kind of film noirish now, Ian. <laughs> I'm trying to you're, what? You're kind you're of film, film noirish. Noir. You're, film you're, noir. You're, yeah, yes. you're, you're lit on one side. No, that's absolutely fine. Yes, I like asymmetry, as you probably know. Um, so, yes, um, where were we? We were talking about. You were talking about Whitehead and. Yeah, the reciprocal opening between God and yes, the world. Yes, reciprocal opening. So I think that is a very important idea. And I think that another thing that um, is worth saying while talking about faith is there is a similar duality in the idea of belief. So, for example, um, I can say I believe in a certain person. You know, yes. I really believe in him. It means I put my trust in him. 
or her. And, it, and the point there is that there is something about them that almost places a responsibility on me to respond. But it also, by that very fact, it also places a responsibility on them to be true to what it is I believe in. You know, if they yes. let you down, then there has been a failure yes. of this relationship. Yeah. So that what we are doing in life is always assessing and helping to grow certain relationships. There is no certainty about anything at all. But that exactly. doesn't make it blind. And yes. This concept of faith as blind needs to be put to bed once and for all. If I am fording a stream and my companion has gone ahead across the stream and as I get near the bank, I need a hand and he or she holds out a hand to me, it's not a random hand. It's not like blind to trust this hand. I have to step and I have to take the hand. And, and that's, that's the way I see it, that you see something that is calling to you and saying, if you understand this, it will radically change the way you think about the world. And there is no one right way to know. So just to say, well, I think I've already got it and I'm not going to try this at all. I'm not going to put myself in the way of something happening. That's really what I'm saying. It has to be experiential, as we, John and I agree. Um, but what that means is that you do have a responsibility to put yourself in the way of something happening. Um, you know, if, if you sit at home saying, I want to marry, but I'll never, I'll never meet anybody, but you never ever leave the home, you'll never get married. So if you want to, you, you don't know who you will marry, it's entirely unpredictable, it may be chance what happens, but nonetheless you have to open yourself to the possibility, otherwise it won't happen. And the same I think is true of our relationship with with the cosmos at large, which I believe is a living organismic entity, a conscious entity, or God, depending on what it is that you be. I don't want to rule anybody's um, attempt to make this encounter out just because of a word. I wanted to pick up on the, the you know, the, the connections between, you know, trust, troth, truth. We talk about being being betrothed to somebody, we talk about being true to somebody. There's deep connections between these, and and and, the, and and we've come up with a notion of faith that is so disconnected from that interconnecting set, you know, truth and troth and trust. Uh, that that that's just a fundamental mistake. We need a sense. Of, that's why I propose the notion of faithfulness, because many people hear something different in faithfulness than they do to faith, because it connects with that being true to. Right, betrothing yourself to somebody, trusting, yes, etc. Yes, yes. No, I, all of that I, I don't agree with. Kurt, have we gone anywhere to answering anything of your your question? I need to think <laughs> about this. I generally think more when I'm editing too. Mm. Here's something interesting. Talking about the flow state, there's also this adage that we need to be more present, and that life will just pass you by if you're not present. However, when one is, in, at least when I'm in the flow state. Maybe I'm present, but life is certainly passing me by in the sense that if you stop me right now, you say, Kurt, am I in the flow state? I realize, actually, yes, I have been in the flow state. So much time has passed by, but I can consciously remember little of it. But that doesn't mean that it's not implicit. An estimated, over-precise estimate of the amount of stuff that our brain is processing is that only 0.6% of it is stuff that we are aware of being aware of. 
So our self-conscious, self-aware awareness uh, is the accompaniment to almost all of our life. It doesn't mean it's not happening to us. It doesn't mean it's not changing us. It doesn't mean that we're not partaking in it. It just means uh, that that bit of us in which we stand back and consciously say, I've been in this state or I am in this state. Well, first of all, doing that in the state would interrupt it. And it's again, to quote Whitehead, he says that operations of thought are like cavalry charges in battle. They need to be very rare, they require fresh horses, and they're not a solution to the way in which one carries out a campaign. So, you know, you, uh, the fact that you're not aware, but I wanted just to talk about time, because there's a, a sense in which time is passing, in which we're outside the flow objectively, and we're watching things happening, and we have this image of something moving mm. past us. But okay. there's another kind of being in the flow of time where we're not standing on the bank of the river with a, a clipboard and a stopwatch measuring things, but we are actually in the flow. We are literally swimming with the river. And as far as we're concerned, the river is not really moving. We're moving with the river. So relative to us, as it were, time is still. But in fact, nonetheless, the flow is happening. Time is passing. We are part of it. It just depends on whether we're apart from it and, and imagining ourselves to be stationary or taking part in it. Yeah, I, I, I don't have much to add to that other than sort of a Bergsonian idea that when we, when we, when we were start reflecting on time and i'm not saying we shouldn't but we, we lose timing and, and and you know i mean this is this is the way to distract this is the way to it's a sneaky way to win when you're sparring with somebody compliment what they just did because then they'll stand back and look at it and they'll become precisely disengaged from it and then you win because you've got an opening right right uh, and and because they're not because they're it's an, an adversarial thing they're not expecting a compliment it? you're a wicked man john no i think it's <laughs> excellent it's oriental oriental <laughs> art isn't it yeah so, yeah i mean I'm, I'm not advising doing that i have done it and i have i have <laughs> I, 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 once and i have seen it well maybe more than once but not a lot yeah, of times yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but just to make but the point i'm making aside from my uh, uh my whether or not i i, I fell into advice is that um i hope you know i'm joking <laughs> uh, well I, I that's why i'm laughing um so yeah uh yeah I, I i think there's a sense i mean augustine said it famously i know what time is until somebody asks me and i'm not i don't want to get too much into the philosophy of time but there are i hope this doesn't come off as a ridiculous pseudo postmodern pun there are times when timing matters and there's times when the future matters. Uh, I think giving the advice to always stay in the present moment is, is, is like, that's not true. Uh, I mean, we, 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 we need a present moment that is bound ratio religio, uh, to our future self. We have to pursue long-term goals. Uh, Myerseth and Fishbach talk about, you know, you have two different things. You have to do things inside a frame. You have to be able to self-regulate, delay gratification. That's in the present moment. And mindfulness practices are power. Meditative practices are powerful for that. But you also need to do frame widening because you need to see if what's happening in your present state is concurrent, not concurrent, con consonant with your long-term future goals and your future self. Remember the people who don't save for their retirement. You need to balance properly between them. And I think that's what contemplative practices do. 
contemplative practices are all often designed not to get us immersed in the present moment in that sense. They're designed to remind us about the comprehensive big picture in powerful and deep ways. And I put it to you that what we're actually after is Marlo Ponti's sense of an optimal grip, a, a dynamic balance between those. Again, that for me is a, that is an essential dimension of ratio religio. How am I properly bound to time? Simplistic models, I do not think, give us what is conducive to a good human life. I mean, we don't we don't want to be a wanton, right? We don't want to be a creature of pure impulse because then we'll just be destroyed. Our this is Bellman's point. Our agency will just be destroyed. I think that's absolutely not what many exponents of the idea that we should remain in the present are meaning, not that we should be, uh, you know, thoughtless and, and never reflect yes. and, and not that we should be impulsive above all, but that we should be able, in fact, by a kind of standing back to be more present to the whole. I, yes. I, I think, I mean, I don't disagree with your essential point. I, I often think, you know, it's all very well, but we are the the creature that looks before and behind, you know, and that is our nature. We are beings who reflect towards the past and the future. So, yeah. I agree deeply. Uh, what I meant was... I, I know. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that's the way to think of it. I agree. I'm agreeing with how you're agreeing with me. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> what, what, but no, but Kurt, I want to respond to Kurt because sure, sure. then what, what I want to, what, what, because I, 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 I propose that many people are using the slogan of being the present moment as a license for impulsivity, for gratification, for not long-term planning, for being reckless. For justifying going for the gusto and all other of the we have a whole constellation of memes around this right which is of course designed to keep us buying stuff and perpetually dissatisfied um and that was the sense i wanted to challenge okay so let me see if i can tie a few threads together and weave it back to the beginning ian when you said yeah there's a misinterpretation of what it means to be in the present moment this is interesting because much of the advice that I read in the comment section, not on Toe videos, well, on Toe videos, but on other people's videos and advice that I hear from quote unquote gurus and so on, I'm interpreting it in a certain way because I grew up in the West. And the way that they're interpreting something in, from an English text, which was already translated and perhaps they have a misinterpretation, then mm. I'm misinterpreting what they're saying. Mm. So when some people say, well, I am God or so and so on, people say, yeah, I feel that. Well, you don't know if what you if what they mean is what you feel. And then when I hear about, we were talking earlier about practices and rituals and they're important, you hear, well, we should do, we should be mindful more. And this feature list, as you call them, John, this bullet point list yeah. of what we should do. It's, it's not entirely clear. Like I believe in, I used to believe in all that, let's say two years, one, my adult life until one year ago, because I'm, I'm such a liberal person in the sense that I want everyone to be correct. Like every culture is correct in their way and everyone's touching a certain part of the elephant. It's, it's just a different part and, and no one's wrong. So let me just, let me take the, the good and, and put in different pieces into me. However, I feel it's as if trying to install Mac software on a Windows computer. It's like we're, we're Windows. <laughs> and if you force an EXE on a Mac, not, not firstly, it won't load, but if you force it, it will corrupt it. And so I think so much of what's gone 
incorrect with me and perhaps with others, because as I talk about certain, let's say, episodes of mine, publicly, people say, oh my gosh, I've gone through something similar and I haven't heard almost anyone else talk about it and here's what I've gone through. I feel like what's happening is that we're being told so many lessons from so many different places and they're not unified and we're trying to apply them to ourselves. So Ian, you used this word marrying earlier, that you need to open yourself up to marriage. And earlier you talked about traditional religion and Kurt, his entire adult life and his entire teenage life, just an inexorable atheist, an uncompromising one, one that's condescending to anything that is remotely superstitious or what I would classify as superstitious, would say, no, there's nothing in traditional religion that needs saving. And if we're going to formulate something that's a new religion it has to be religion without religion in John's words, though I'm using those words now, I wouldn't have said that before. But I see that there's something to marrying a religion. And what I mean by that is when it comes to my wife, it's not like I evaluated every woman on the planet and said, this was the best one. There's going to be flaws with each one. So it's as if I had to decide that she's the right one or create the right one together with her. And I wonder if the same is true with religion. That part of this is that we simply need to decide a religion and then make it right for us. And it's not going to be right. There's going to be so much that they say that's incorrect. So that I'm just like, no, there's like Adam and Eve didn't, it's not literal. And why are you excoriating evolution constantly? Like, this is not how it is. And, and I disbelieve that and so on and so on. There's so much that I disbelieve, but there's so much that I gain from it. There's so much that I gain from having this community that's ensconced in a tradition. So anyway, those are some thoughts that I'm laying out in a sense to tie what we talked about in the beginning together with some of the threads that were left open throughout. What are your thoughts on that? John, do you want to start? Well, you were addressing them to Ian. I thought he should respond first. Ian, please. <laughs> well, I, I don't know which bit to respond to, but um, uh, I mean, first of all, I think that there's a huge problem in um, taking something that is clearly a myth as literal truth. I think that's a very modern idea that, you know, we're so used to talking only literal terms mean anything and are true, that a myth, I mean, the very word suggests that it's false. But now, we only started using the word in the 19th century. And uh, in fact, of course, um, mythos was anciently for the Greeks, the superior way of arriving at truth. Logos was a secondary kind of truth which over time took over from it. But it was through, through mythos that one actually reached these deeper realities that I think you're describing uh, as possibly being experienced by people in religion. Um, the idea of marrying, yes, I mean, uh, of course, I'm not talking, well, I, I don't know if I mentioned that. I mean, I was just using it as an example. But I, I, I think that the point there is that it brings up the idea of something that is fitting. Um, mm -hmm. Carpenters still talk about two surfaces that meet perfectly as marrying. They're fitting. And it's this sense of something that is a correspondence that is a tension or something that is resolved in a new union. That something is what we're describing uh, as the, the meaningful encounter, the faithful encounter, where something about the two surfaces produce something completely new that neither surface on their own could even conceive of, never mind achieve. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, the way I would put that um, um, is what you're doing in religion is continuous with what you're doing in all of your cognition, which is relevance realization, which is about 
trying to fit your framing to the world, and it is not given by you nor received by the world, but transjective. It is made by the two fitting together, just like biological adaptivity. Uh, if, 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 you know, Kurt, that's how I use, I use that as a metaphor for the relevance realization that I think is at the core of our cognition. And so what are you doing with a myth? I think you're doing a kind of relevance realization. Myths aren't false stories about the paths. They're imaginal stories to enable us to see pertinent and profound and pervasive problems and patterns that we are not paying attention to. Myth, in that sense, is bound up with the proper sense of prophecy. Prophecy isn't telling the future. It's telling forth what needs to be seen right now, deeply. And so for me, like if you are getting a lot out of it, ask yourself, can, and you know, the fact that whoever is giving you the really silly sermon about, you know, the book of Genesis disproves Darwin or something ridiculous than that. I, I mean, like, if you can, if, if the myth comes alive for you, what's it doing? I mean, the best, the best myths make us aware of the fact that we're bound up in mythos, that we're bound up in relevance realization, that we're bound to the world, that we're connected to it. We're connected to each other. And, and, and this connectedness, we don't make it, we, nor do we merely receive it. We participate in it. We cultivate it. And, and, and we have a deep and profound responsibility to it because of how much we belong to it and, and, and participate in it. And I think that's what, um, when religion is functioning well, it uses its mythos to do that. Can religion malfunction? Of course it can. Everything can malfunction. Science can malfunction. Math was on this crazy thing where they, you know, this whole project, we thought we could give a logical foundation for math, you know, a century of this crazy, and it turned out just to be an impossible project. We can go, everything, even math can go down rabbit holes. we got to stop, again, like hoping that we'll find perfection as the mark of the sacred, with meaning that in which we should trust, right? God we trust, right? We, 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 we've got to get more to this sense of fecundity, richness. When I do my Neoplatonic practices, the virtue that I, the virtues that I cultivate in them transfer very well to my experience and to my mind, to my, my practices as a scientist and vice versa. And a lot of people, this is now becoming a viable philosophical position, virtue epistemology. That actually what we're doing in all of our domains is trying to cultivate a set of virtues that we can apply across these many domains. And so for me, if it's doing that, if the mythos allows you to cultivate virtues that percolate through your psyche and permeate through your life, why are you like, that's what more could you want? What, 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 what more could you want? That's what, that's what, I mean, that's, that, that's what you want when you marry someone. <laughs> uh, and I think, We've got, uh, we've got to give up, I keep saying this, we've got to give up the hunger for completion, for certainty, for comprehensive grasp. We've got to stop that. And it's so, it's so endemic and insidious in our thinking. It takes a lot of effort, personally and collectively, to address that. Ian, should we give up on all of certainty or should we say, oh, I like so-and-so because it's more certain. I don't have the idea that I'll ever be 100% certain, but... This gives me more groundedness, more certainty. When we call anything certain, we can only mean certain up to a point. There is no such thing as total certainty. 
And in different areas, certainty means different kinds of thing, really. So uh, I think I agree entirely with John that giving up on the idea of certainty is hugely important. And it's the belief that either science or reason will lead us to the same infallible conclusion, all of us, um, and will reveal the truth about things is, is, is naive, dangerous, deluded. But not that we should honor science and reason, we should. We should also honor intuition and imagination. And you know, just perhaps to the last thing I shall say, the greatest myth for me is um, the myth that is about myth, mm. which is the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. So Orpheus was a demigod, and uh, he, he, he could, with his music, move stones, he could move people, obviously, he could even change the course of a river. So he had some magical power of his music that nobody could resist. And he got married to a princess, Eurydice. And after the wedding, Eurydice with her bridesmaids was walking in a meadow, and she was bitten on the heel by a viper, and she died. And Orpheus was completely grief struck. And he thought, I'm going to go down into the underworld and plead for her. And something that nobody had ever been able to succeed at doing or able to go there at all, never mind to succeed. So he went to the underworld and he played for the gods of the underworld. And they were so moved that they said, yes, okay, we will give you back your bride on one condition, that you, you walk out of the underworld and you don't look back at her until you are completely both clear of the underworld. And at the end of his journey out, he couldn't resist taking a look at his loved one. And he was so over overwhelmed, he reached towards her, and she shrunk away back into the underworld, never to be seen again. Now, what that seems to me to be about is the power of the not looked at, the implicit, the thing that has to remain outside our diminishing consciousness, our world of words, because it simply is too great for it and can only be conveyed through imagination in myths, imagination in a religious faith or a spiritual realm anyway. Well, thank you all. Thank you all for coming out. I, it's, I think it's apt that you said, this may be the last thing I say, and then talk about how speaking itself is besmirching whatever you're talking about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's been the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. Sometimes I have these intimations when I do this podcast and I study these different theories. I have these intimations that what I'm doing is a sin in a sense. Sin is maybe an incorrect word, but it's not progressing forward, it's progressing backward that by explicating, I'm performing an undoing, and I should just stop and <laughs> be a monk and go into a monastery and just not speak, because to speak of it diminishes it. One day we must talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, we could talk about that. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about not talking. <laughs> exactly. John, any last words, and then we wrap? Um, I, got, I got very excited at times because... We've only spoken once before. Um, finding a mind as deep and a heart as deep and, and sharp and insightful as Ian after writing a, a truly impressive work, uh, often converging 
and this is in no way trying to take any credit away from men, but finding it often converging with my work. Uh, I find deeply encouraging. Um, independent lines of research are valued in science because the chances that they have been produced by bias, independent lines that converge, the chance that they've been produced by bias is reduced by that very convergence. And the fact that he coming from something, they're very different. And we often found ourselves in very significant agreement. I hope it was still entertaining for people watching. But for me, <laughs> I just wanted to express the gratitude. And if I got over enthusiastic at some points, I apologize. But I was, I'm just, I find it deeply encouraging. And I mean that word very, almost literally, very encouraging uh, that, that this kind of convergence has occurred. Because for me, it raises the plausibility of my own work. Um, and also helps me, of course, uh, deeply appreciate Ian's work. But I wanted to thank Ian for that, because that, I mean, it, and it, it, I, uh, I take so, it, everything I, you were, were doing here was sincere and authentic, as a, as I tried to be. Yes, so for course. me, for me, it's just, it was, it's it's powerful. I find it a very powerful experience. A, a, a true, a true, a true, and I mean, I hope this is not meant in any way off, but like a true peer, you know what I mean? And, we're, and, and playing with the words, we're, we're peering at the same thing. And <laughs> and I just I, I, I thank you, Do, thank you very much. Well, I can only respond in kind, uh, John. I, I feel the same thing. It's so rare to find minds that are so fully in in sync. Really, um, we found things that we could slightly gloss for one another, but effectively, <laughs> we we're, we're we're really talking about the same things. And I I I have only gratitude for your kindness and your warmth and. And, and the feeling of, you know, fellowship. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, take good. care. Very good. Yeah, great All pleasure. right, then. I thank hope we talk much. again, too. I hope we talk again, again. I hope so, too. All right, then. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you for sticking around for two and a half hours. I appreciate that. I hope that it was enjoyable to you. Again, there's the website theoriesofeverything.org. That's a place that you can go to support Toe if you're interested in that. Like I mentioned in the intro, there are several benefits. You get an ad-free audio version. You get that sometimes 12 to 48 hours to a few days prior to premiering on YouTube. You get discounts to the live events when we finally do have them. Sometimes those tickets may even be free. So for instance, I'm looking into doing something with John Verveke and Ian McGilchrist in person. This is all extremely tentative right now, but this is a plan to do in the future. Carl Friston in London, live in front of an audience, is another example. There will be exclusive merch and so on. There's quite a few benefits. You can text me if you like. There's a number, at least we're testing that for about one week or one month or so. Again, that's theoriesofeverything.org. Thank you all for watching. It's great to see you in the live chat. I appreciate all of the love. Thank you. Thank you so much.